Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me this week as my co-host is the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, retired Navy Captain Bill Bray. Hello, Bill. Hello. Good to be here. So, uh, because this is your first show of the new year, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So, I know your sons have been home, and your was your daughter home for the holidays? Both my daughters. Both your daughters were home, and uh, you were talking about how your one son, who's a pitcher, has been throwing to you, and and it's kind of hairy. Yes, he's uh, entering his final college season, and he always needs someone to catch him over the break as he gets his arm back into shape. I'm woefully unqualified to do that. It's highly risky. Um, I mean, because he can throw the ball like pro style fast, right? Fast. What's his fastball clock clocked it, in at? Uh, high eighties. High eighties. That's intense. And uh, so we, we found a solution last night in uh, Halsey Fieldhouse, which was instead of me catching him, I get behind the net and he throws into the <laughs> net. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, or I stand in the box and just pretend I'm hitting that's and he throws into sauce. the net. So uh, that's a good compromise. He's happy. I'm happy. So, okay. so More it, than people out there need to know about this. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Um, you never know what you're going to get on the Proceedings Podcast. Yeah. Um, so... Um, our, our guest today is actually in the studio with us. Um, it, it's uh, our good friend of the Naval Institute, Brian McGrath. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at at ConsWahoo. Um, and uh, we'll certainly be talking about uh, UVA's basketball fortunes during the course of our discussion here and other, other things dealing with Charlottesville. Um, but uh, Brian recently wrote an article on the USNI blog uh, titled, um, Increase fleet lethality by arming the amphibs. So my experience with amphibs um, is uh, is limited, but uh, I'll just tell you what it is because it's really a cool story. Um, so my youngster crews, um, for um, those who don't know their, their Navy, uh, Naval Academy gouge, youngster is your sophomore cruise, so it's your first experience with the fleet. So I was aboard the USS Portland LSD 37 um, down in Little Creek, and the ship was welded to the pier. Um, and we actually went to sea for, th- for three days um, in Vay Capes. I don't believe that ship had any armored, uh, any f- uh, a- a- offensive capability at all. Um, and then fast forward three years for my first class cruise. Um, I actually did the Marine Option Cruise, but to get to Hawaii, we had to take, we were part of the Mew. So we left San Diego and went to Pearl Harbor, and I was aboard the USS Schenectady, LST-1185. Um, and that was a hairy ride. I mean, right out of Point Loma, snap rolls, 45 degrees, you know, either side. And uh, we asked the suppo for a chair, and he gave us a rolling chair, which we had to tie to the sink in our stateroom. Um and, you know, the, the waves would come and hit that Derek arm up in front. And, you know, it just wasn't – it didn't strike us, uh, these cynical group of mids, as a very seaworthy craft. No, but it provided the Suppo and his team with hours of enjoyment. Yeah, thinking sure. about you rolling around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I gave him a rolling chair, a yeah. uh, chair with wheels. Um, the midshipman chair. Yeah. <laughs> there you well, go. Well, I did my only swell tour as an amphib sailor. So uh, LPD-7, the Steam and Cleveland. Yeah, but an LPD, that's like a real ship. We had a three-inch fifty gun. Yeah, there you on go on the bow, and uh, and and that that was fired you know, once every training cycle. But um, 
and we went through the Strait of Hormuz, we had Marines um, embarked with Stinger missiles. So that was our um, self-protection. That's your, that's your self-protection. A- after that, it was ramming speed. Yeah. That was how you got yeah. the enemy. So um, let's talk about your 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 article uh, uh, from from the blog. Um, so you you tee it up by talking about distributed lethality, which is something that uh, that the Navy has uh, been touting for some years now. And then you talk about um, the admiral who relieved um, Emma Roden as N ninety six Realma Pete Fanta back a couple of years ago, who, uh, as you described, coined the memorable phrase: "If it floats, it fights." Um, so. What are some of the ideas for um, arming our amphibs, and what what would the uh, compelling argument be for doing doing that? The the argument for arming amphibs flows logically from the argument to increase the lethality of the entire surface force, and that that argument is that uh, we can provide a more robust and effective conventional deterrent in the places where it matters, and the places where it matters are those. Places close to Russia and China, uh, which they might make aggressive moves toward, but which are relatively limited objectives, the kinds of objectives that might not trigger a full-scale war between the United States and those powers. So um, the the theory of of distributed lethality was that we would make all the surface force ships – uh, more of a difficult problem for our adversaries to contend with by putting uh, a greater array of arm- armament on them, by networking more effectively, by providing more ISRNT uh, to them. Break. That difficulty for the adversary is uh, provided by the fact that there are certain ships that they don't have to pay a whole lot of attention to. LCS was one of those. The Amphibs was another one of them. They didn't have to pay as much attention to them because they didn't have offensive striking power. They couldn't uh, hold targets at risk on land. So by they, you mean the enemy? The enemy. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. The, the enemy could did not have to fear them because they didn't have to. They couldn't hold targets on land at risk, and they couldn't hold naval uh, forces afloat at risk. Um, this. By, by increasing the lethality of the things that float, you make them have to, quite frankly, give a damn about a, a greater number of things. They have a finite number of ISR resources to distribute among those things. They have a finite number of weapons. And so what you do is you dilute the effective salvo on any one unit by making them have to dilute their mix across a much broader range of ships that could do them harm. Now, the distributed lethality priorities for the surface force when uh, the idea was cooked up in 2014 were obviously the the Crudez ships. We had uh, stopped putting surface-to-surface missiles on uh, Arleigh Burke destroyers with number 78. From 79 on up, the Flight 2 Alphas and newer, none of them had an offensive missile. You could shoot standard missile in a surface engagement mode roughly to the horizon, but you had nothing, nothing. We had a destroyer that couldn't destroy another ship. Um, We created the LCS, and it did not have a a long or a medium-range surface-to-surface missile. Uh, So we looked at what we could do 
with with immediacy, and that was things like the naval strike missile on the LCS. That's things like the uh, Block Four Tomahawk coming out of VLS launchers on cruisers and destroyers. It's the uh, SM6 in the surface mode coming out of VLS. So we've done a good job of resourcing offensive power, both land strike and sea strike, on those uh, traditional crew des ships. My article is about the wasted space. <laughs> we have, uh, uh, you know, somewhere between 30 and 33 amphibs, or excuse me, 30 and 38 amphibs planned over the next 20 years. Um, it seems to me we could do a whole lot more with the, real, the available real estate on those ships. Surface to surface missiles, uh, land attack missiles, either from canisterized versions or from uh, vertical launching systems. But the bottom line is if distributed lethality is a good idea, and it is, then more distributed lethality is a better idea. And that's why I think it's time to arm the amphibs. So adding offensive capabilities to amphibious ships um, is much more, of course, than a hardware challenge, I mean, which is with a cost to it. Um, you're talking about um, a different complement of crew. You're talking about different uh, levels of training, a whole other uh, set of skills that the, that the crew needs to be able to handle. Um, so is the, is the resistance, or if there is resistance to this idea in your mind, um, cost a, a, a resource-driven resistance more than a cultural resistance? And you mentioned later in the piece about the the Marines will not like this. So anything that sort of takes the, puts the ship, um, uh, the amphibious ship, in a place where it has other missions to worry about besides the, the, its primary amphibious warfare mission will, will not sit well with the Marine Corps. So there, the objections, the antibodies to this idea are really a case of uh, where you where you sit. Where you stand depends on where you sit. Um, there are those who oppose this idea, not in principle, but in the doing, and the doing means money. And uh, as you point out, it's going to cost money to do this. There's no question about it. And so, when you look at when you have uh, a finite amount of money, you prioritize other things, and this doesn't rise in their level of priority. I understand that. Uh, uh, if you want to talk about how to spend the same amount of money more effectively, don't invite me on your podcast. I'm the guy who says we should spend more money. We should have more money for the Navy. Um, and so that uh, an effective place for that addition, those additional resources to go would be to increase the lethality of, of the amphibious ships along with the cruiser destroyer force. Um, interestingly enough, um, when I talked about the Marines and culture, it's there is a strain of thinking in the Marines, a very, and I think it's an ascendant strain um, today, uh, where the Marine Corps sees itself, quite rightly, as a weapon system of the Joint Forces Maritime Component Commander. That the Marine Corps, like Tomahawks, like the carrier air wing, is a maritime weapon. And... Um, when you make a psychological shift like that and you, and you really begin to see yourself as within the joint task force construct, as a weapon system delivered from the sea rather than a land force, which to some extent they had become in the previous 20 years, um, you see a force, you see a, a service beginning to think very differently about itself. 
Um, so there are there are there are some druids in the in the, I'm sure in the Marine Corps who don't who who fear that we would be using amphibs like we use cruisers and destroyers and it would take them from their primary mission. Um, I think that is uh, you solve that problem with the range of the missiles we're talking about. The more range the missiles have, the more likely wherever that ship is is in range of something we would like to uh, we would like to neutralize. Um, and so you see this kind of, uh, I, I think, really forward-looking thinking coming from Marines uh, on several subjects. There, so I, I've encountered a lot of support for this idea in the Marine Corps. You look at the F-35B. I mean, I, I consider the F-35B to be a significant platform in the U.S. Navy, in, in, in the maritime, uh, or excuse me, in the naval fleet architecture, uh, in that it can provide so much back to the to the the task force to the carrier task force to the shooters and when you start to think about the the marine corps the navy the carrier strike wing the the uh strike the, the wing on the uh on the big deck amphib you get this this bubble of american sea power that just moves it moves over the littoral it moves out into the uh moves out into the um in, into the blue waters and what you what you come up with then is a a scheme in which the joint forces maritime component commander owns all the weapons owns all the assets and applies the right weapon and the right asset to the right target and i think that is what's causing some of this this concept of belonging back at sea and being a maritime weapon system is something that's causing the marines to look at offensive lethality from these ships as a positive thing well i, I now that you say that i remember general natter uh, the commandant saying at West last year um, that for the first time in a while, as we talk peer to peer, the Marine Corps has to be concerned with fighting its way to their destination. Um, so I, I can see why he would be supportive of of this concept. Um, the entire joint force is going to have to worry about fighting to get to the fight, fighting to stay in the fight, and then fighting to win the fight. It's it is a different ball. And that's yeah, that's completely different. I mean, we we travel between Norfolk and you know the North Arabian Sea or the Gulf with impunity. You know, there's maybe you didn't run into a pirate or two uh, in the Bab El Mandeb Straits, but beyond that, yeah. you you wouldn't be uh, you wouldn't encounter any sort of war at sea uh, circumstance. Um, so, you mentioned some programmatics because, as you've just alluded to. Um, you know, no bucks, no buck Rogers. Um, and some of the folks on Facebook are also saying, um, you know, how are we going to pay for this in this budgetary environment? Um, so I think very quickly we went from this bull market to this bear market um, between this last year's um, um, NDAA and, and the one that's forthcoming, whatever palm cycle we're in or whatever. Um, and so... You mentioned some commonalities in the article of uh, stuff we could do between the the Fig X and LPD Flight Two, aligning those platforms. Um, so, in terms of realistically fitting this into a budget cycle, um, can you can you school the audience on on how that might go and, and some of the considerations uh, within sure. that those constraints? Sure. Well, within the budget, within the current budget, the Navy is going to build frigates and it's going to build flight two LPDs. Both of these ships need combat systems. The combat system for the FFGX has been designated. 
It's government furnished equipment. The five offerers know exactly what they have to integrate. My and the, on the other hand, the LPD-17 Flight 2, to my knowledge, has not had a combat system designated for it. My proposal is put the same combat system on it. Um, you don't have to hang all of the same ornaments on the Christmas tree, but if you have the same Christmas tree, when we make when budget uh, room becomes available to uh, equip the ships with the kinds of weapon systems that I want, it will have a sophisticated combat system there ready to receive them, it, which is essentially a variant of the Aegis weapon system. Um, the the combat system that uh, SSDS Mark II, uh, the, the general combat system that's on the uh, amphibious force right now, we have this. We have two different combat systems. <laughs> we have the one that the amphibs run, and we have the one that the crew des force runs. And the Navy wants to start to move towards uh, a s singling up on a combat system. And I think we have two uh, acquisition programs that lend the possibility for what I would consider a worthwhile investment of money because you have to put combat systems in both of them. Um, if you purchase more combat systems for the LPD-17s uh, from the uh, FFGX, you get economic order quantities, you bring the unit cost down for those combat systems. Uh, ultimately, the cost of an Aegis variant on LPD-17 Flight 2 might be more than we were going to spend before. But the payoff in terms of the long-term life cycle upkeep and modernization capabilities on those ships, it's manifest. You you can then start to turn those into actual fighting machines. This One of the things I really want to do is to, you know, we all have, we have our tribes, right? We have our submarine tribe, our surface tribe, our aviation tribe. Within the surface warfare force, we have tribes there too, right? We have the mine warfare tribe. We have the amphibious force tribe. We have the crew des tribe. Um, I would like to see the uh, the lines between crew des and amphibious force sailors begin to blur uh, and it and and they will blur if the amphibious ships become networked killers with offensive weapons with networked radars I mean we're going to put a variant of the um, of the uh, uh, air and missile defense radar on the LPD flight 2 that's this uh, th we're putting a variant of that same radar on the FFGX we're doing so we're trying to begin to network radars together. Um, we're getting to the point where these distinctions between amphibious sailors and crew des sailors might not be worthwhile anymore. Uh, there are skills, obviously, in, in pulling off an amphibious landing that you need to know, and you need to be, those sailors need to know those things. But um, the rest of the time, the ability to, to do target motion analysis, to do fine fixed track kill surface ships, to do targeting ashore, those are skills that should be. Uh, uh, across both kinds of, of uh, sailors. So uh, when I hear you, it was a very good uh, operational kind of level argument for this. I, I think um, I, I'm, I'm a little, uh, I want to ask you about the tactical implications of this from a crew standpoint. You talked about, you know, the new amphibs should be able to do more blurring the lines between the traditional amphib sailor and, and officer, um, surface warfare officer and the, and the crew des. But the crew des ships are never going to do amphibious warfare. So those those crews and those officers will do those traditional missions. Uh, the technology will change, but the missions will endure. 
you're, what you're doing with the infant force, I hear saying, is you're adding another set of missions. So my question to you is, is there a risk of uh, mission overload for an amphibious uh, uh, ship uh, crew and wardroom where they, they, they are, you know, average at everything, great at nothing? I don't, I don't want to sound glib, um, but the answer is I don't think there's a risk. Um, especially as we uh, work towards combat systems and human-machine interfaces where the machines serve the person better, where a set of algorithms ride on top of the combat system capabilities that provide battle management algorithms and battle management aids and prompts to the, to the watchstanders. Um, I think that there is a common set of skills that we could create in surface warriors that would then give you the ability to, to, from day one, perform most of the missions on both of the ships. Amphibious warfare is a sophisticated undertaking that has a set of skills that standard crew does stuff doesn't. One of the ways that I think we'll get uh, some more of this of this cross pollination. Is, is to return to a, something we did 10, 10, 12 years ago where we had crew des and amphibious ships operating together. He's called an ESG, an Expeditionary Strike Group. Um, I think if you read the, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments 2017 Fleet Architecture and you look at the fleet architecture that's described there where you have a deterrence force that's made up largely of crew des ships and the amphibious force, um, you would have the opportunity both in the workups for that, for those kinds of employments and in the day-to-day operations in those kind of employments for a higher level of cross-pollination than exists. I was the, uh, I was the alpha whiskey for an expeditionary strike group when I commanded a destroyer. I got uh, a serious level of education in amphibious warfare just and and my team did also just by having to support uh those missions um i think we've moved away from that again and we have amphibs off alone and unafraid doing their things and we have crudez doing their things and we have and and i think we can fight more effectively if there is a a, a more unifying unifying fleet architecture that ties them together. well and, and that phenomenon you describe is a function of a very permissive environment right that you can do that um, and, and all it takes is one um, Chinese submarine, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, geez, um, we, we haven't thought holistically here. We haven't thought about a peer threat. Um, you know, and, and so I, I think the time, as you're saying, you're, you're you know, sounding the alarm here, uh, the time to think uh, holistically this way is, is now, right? Because we have budget cycles. So even if we put our best programmatic minds on the case, um, you know, to, to get this into a five-year defense plan or the budget, you know, what would you have to do to fast-track this or whatever? How could you, um, I mean, how quickly could we get any of this capability to I the mean, fleet? You could, you could slap a, you could slap a surface-to-surface missile system on an amphib in under a month. Really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, right. it, yeah, it really is. It, there, it would be, it would be additive. It wouldn't be fully integrated, but you could you know, in a series of afternoons, create a much more capable ship. You could put an eight-pack of of uh, uh, extended-range harpoons or naval strike missile or whatever you want to purchase, uh, Lorazm, whatever you, whatever you would want to purchase, 
you could you could put them on, you could train the crew up, and that ship could go out and kill other ships. We're not talking about um, we're not talking about about you know uh, splitting the atom here. Yeah, you're talking about off the shelf technology. You could you could do stuff. a lot to modernize the existing fleet, and then you could build in some of the um, some of the uh, 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 capability with the new construction stuff. Uh, to your knowledge, Brian, has 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 there been a study done or studies that uh, that look at this from uh, that really get down in in kind of the weeds as far as weight capability? Amphibs always have to deal with, you know, their loaded weight um, when they're in in an amphibious warfare role, loaded with the with the Marines and all their equipment. So when you talk about a weapon system, you got to think about magazines, extra people, perhaps, and that sort of thing. And and I know. You know, I was again a long time ago, but I mean, as an amphib sailor, there's, there's, a, these are all considerations. And then looking forward to future marine equipment capability and what, what that's going to weigh. Again, I, I don't want to sound glib, but those are consider considerations, but they're implementation details. The, the decision to make to the go order has to happen, and then it becomes implementation details. Now there are studies that there are. There are studies that have uh, looked at VLS magazines in the LPD-17 class. Okay. I mean, it, 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 this wouldn't be a surprise uh, on anybody. Um, what what strikes me, though, is um, we get to where I am advocating we go with consistently higher resources for the United States Navy. The United States Navy has gotten more money in the last couple of years. We shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking we got more money in the last two years because we made a good argument. We made a, we made we got more money in the last two years because everyone got more money. Um, That's a good point. I, we need we need to make a very coherent argument and make it over and over and over again until it's perfect, and then make it perfectly over and over and over again, so that the American people are reminded of just how important what we do is. And their representatives on the Hill are constantly aware that there is only one service or one, one, one element of American military power that is equally important in peacetime as it is in wartime. And that's sea power. And uh, this is something that this is, it's all tied together. And again, like you said, Ward, in a holistic way, we've got to have the story. We've got to tell the story. We've got to generate the vacuum. We've got to fill the vacuum. So do we feel like that's happening now? I mean, <clears throat> is the Navy part of the national defense strategy that language that you're thinking about, or does is this are we lacking there uh, currently? When I looked at the um, the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, I my spider senses were heightened because I said, okay, there's room here. There, there the, these are documents that speak to. You go to the national security strategy. There is a a really important section on the shift from conventional deterrence by punishment to conventional deterrence by denial. Um, I jumped on that like a hobo on a ham sandwich because <laughs> I think that's, that is a role for the Navy and the Marine Corps, a, a big role. Uh, and it requires different force structure, different capabilities, different weapons. Um, there are some uh, thinking through this. I know the vice chief is all over this stuff. He's, He's very. He's thinking very, very much in in this way. But in terms of making the case, getting out there, making the case um, in a way uh, that educates uh, and and, uh, and and creates a, a greater understanding. 
I a couple of years ago I went on a tour and I went to uh, um, what are they Rotary clubs all over the state of Maryland to give a Sea Power pitch. It's on my YouTube Sea uh, Power page if you want to Google it because uh, the the whole thing is there and then it's also split up into little uh, three minute uh, things. And I, and I will tell you I was shocked at just how clueless these business leaders, the sort of cream of the crop of hometown USA, how clueless they were about how important sea power was to their everyday lives. And I tried to create this understanding with them as I went through, and they would come up to me afterwards and say, we just didn't know it was like that. We didn't know. We didn't know. Well, hopefully you didn't experience that in the Annapolis Rotary Club because I've been to a couple of those, no, lu- yeah, no, no, <laughs> those no, lunches did, and there's plenty of Navy veterans. I did, <laughs> it. I, did, I, brief, I did do the South River uh, Annapolis, and it was... Oh yeah! Uh, once yeah. you come across yeah. the South River, it's a different yeah. country. No, no, no. They were yeah. they were all over it. Oh, but, they were. Okay. I mean, out in the wet, out in the uh, the very western panhandle of Maryland. Yeah. It was th- it was three degrees? I remember when I showed up at that Rotary Club that night, <laughs> room full of people, and it, and it was great. You know, the people just nodding and understanding, uh, but no one's talking to them about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, okay. So since we're we're sort of elevated to the big picture. How do you feel the program of record is postured to tackle this? Are you are you comfortable with the the the, the weapons priorities? Uh, you know, not just F thirty five, but uh, you know, Columbia class. You talk about FFGX and what's in the pipe in terms of the next gen, uh, not even the next gen, but the USS Kennedy. You know, and and Ford class. Uh, are we are we trending in the right direction and when i ask that i'm not just talking about six gen capability or whatever i'm talking about also the quantities and the speed at which we can make stuff how are you feeling about that that big picture there my picture is likely to fall off the cno's piano when i say this but the fact that we have the ohio replacement as our number one acquisition program is wrong uh there was a time in this country's past where this country's strategic deterrent was our primary conventional deterrent. This is not that day. Uh, our road to nuclear war uh, is more likely, in my view, to happen. It's unlikely to happen, period. But it's more likely to happen through conventional war gone wrong. Deter the conventional war, you deter the strategic war. The, the uncon, you know, the the, the nuclear war, um, and so when I look at, uh, I'm ready to, I am ready to concede that I am not a nuclear strategist and I might not know what I'm talking about, but when I think about how much it costs to recapitalize that weapon system, and I think about the cost of conventional deterrence, ships, submarines, missiles, radars electronic warfare system, land-based maritime patrol aircraft, UAVs, USVs, uh, UUVs. When I look about all look at all the things that go into that architecture that is designed to deter by denial. And I think about how much money goes is going into this strategic deterrent, I think we're wrong. I I I don't know how to get around it because there is a very um influential and persuasive argument to say that we need to, if we had one dollar we would spend it on the Ohio class submarine I just have never bought that argument 
So what uh, what should be the priority? What what where where should we uh, be focused? Uh, if not number one, energetic weapons, more of them, many 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 more of them, hypersonic weapons, long range weapons, to be sh- to be dropped by to be shot by uh, surface ships, submarines, and launched off of airplanes. We need a competent beyond visual range air to air weapon, fast. <laughs> Um, because uh, when I look at what can take off from the mul- multiple airfields on the Chinese coastline to come out and threaten our ships, I see scores of fourth and fifth generation fighters. And even if we have three or, or four aircraft carriers ready to meet them, we don't have the weapons. I want the, I want those weapons. Um, so w- AMRAM doesn't hack it anymore? No. Okay. Not enough range. Yeah. Um, I am... I am a huge fan of attack submarines. Uh, I think there is no better killing machine than an SSN. I, I think we should uh, we should build more of them. We should understand that they have a limited role in conventional deterrence, and that role is primarily the threat of punishment. Um, but we need to put sophisticated weapons on them. Again, uh, we need to think about what we can do to get more range out of their weaponry, more more energetic weapons coming out of them. Um, I, I honestly think the F-35 gets a bad rap, uh, both as a carrier a carrier launch version and the uh, uh, LPD-17 launch. And, I, and I, every time I mention the F-35, I say, no one's paying me to say that. <laughs> uh, because uh, because I, I have some idea what that airplane is capable of, and I have some idea how important it is uh, to so many different firing chains and so many different kill chains. Um, yeah, I mean the ramp on the F-35 is is about the the fact it's taken so long um, to be fielded and and the the amount of cost inflation over the life of the uh, the program. You know, I mean it was supposed to be it was originally designed and people forget this to be the truck to the F-22's Ferrari, um, and we've long since forgotten that in terms of the way those two platforms i mean we're aging out f-22s now even before we get you know jsf ioc um you we know. should go down and talk to the guys at the the press and get them to pay some smart person to write a book and that book would be 10 chapters and each chapter would be the life of a weapon system that we came to absolutely rely on b2 Aegis, Los Angeles attack submarine. I mean, the MV-22. I mean, you look at... you. There is a predictable life cycle of those weapon systems where we we, we lay out a, a requirement, we start to build to it, it get, we have gigantic cost overruns, someone wants to kill it, uh, various think tanks around Washington say it's... You know, we, we hang tough, smart people solve the problems, and then we deliver it to the fleet, and it is something we can't do it. No, I, I get it. I worked on the V-22 program from return to flight until uh, milestone three. Um, so, y- yes, I'm just saying that why people, because if you talk to somebody at VX-23 who's flying the, yeah. the, the F-35, they're like, I don't ever want to sit in a Super Hornet again. This is an amazing airplane. Yeah. It's lethal. It's, it's, I'll go 1v1 with anybody, right? It's a great airplane. Um, carrier handling or you know around the, the boat the handling ca- capabilities are fantastic 
but the knock on it or this general perception is a function of um, the sort of inside the beltway, um, uh, you know, PEO, JSF kind of stuff. Um, so I, I concur. Um, but what I also will say, and this is the other sort of refrain in, in our when our conversations go big picture, is we've got to do better. Um, V22 is a great example, as you've just listed, of the worst and the best acquisitions program in the history of DOD, right? But you're right. You can. I mean, I'm a Tomcat guy. You, the, the Tomcat um, was almost canceled. The, the the second flight of the airplane had a total hydraulic failure and crashed. You know, it was viewed as a widowmaker, and and you know, every airplane at some point has that label hung on it when you're trying to be uh, a next generation capability. And that was tilt rotor was that right? And like you say, hang tough. You know, I I got to know the people who were bullish on it, and they were, uh, you know. Uh, people of uh, courage, uh, you know, Dan Schultz particularly is uh, comes to mind. He was the program manager at a tough time, uh, now CEO of Sikorsky, uh, ironically enough. Um, and uh, so um, I, you're, you're right, but um, we got to we got to get better. And as we talk about a 355 ship Navy as well, and you you, you uh, look at the path to get there, you know, and. and when you listen to the president speak, sometimes he's like, "Yeah, we already have it, right?" I, I funded it, and thank God, I, I'm, I'm, you know, commander in chief now because I got us this great navy. It's like, well, maybe in 2050, assuming all of these givens actually happen, uh, we might have a 355 ship navy. Um, so, meanwhile, China's ascendant, right? Um, we've we've had it looks we have this game of cat and mouse in the in the Western Pacific is going on more and more, um, and. Uh, you know the world order is shifting rapidly, um, and, and so again, our, what's your comfort level um, with with how much immediacy and how how much how much um, do you think people are, are feeling like this is something we need to attend to? Um, in in you know because you 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 work in those circles uh, quite a bit and you you hear the attitudes. Uh, is it just another day at the office, or is there's this sense of Look, we're already behind, and we've got to seriously get our act together. Um, those are two different things. I think there is a great deal of seriousness. I don't detect a whole lot of we're behind. Um, but aren't we? I don't think so. We're not. Okay. No, I, I don't think so. I, I, you know, I had a. Uh, this is a, this is a, a little bit of a, a story. Um, I was at a uh, a conference in Berlin in 2015. And there was a uh, Chinese three-star, some official at one of their war colleges was there. Um, and I went down to breakfast one morning. And I, and by the way, I've reported this interaction. <laughs> um, I, I was going to check. Yeah, I did. No, I did. Uh, and he and he came and sat with, me, sat across from me. And and um, this was when the uh, this is this is when the. Uh, and I forget, Ersi Battle was raging, the whole, you know, the whole discussion of Ersi Battle. And he says, why are you so afraid of our fleet? And I looked at him and I said, I'm not. And he was like this, I said, I'm not afraid of your fleet. I'm afraid of where you're taking your fleet. I'm afraid of some of the stupid things you might do with it. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm fine. I think, I'm fine. I, I think in a scrape we know what we're doing and we would do just fine. Um, so uh, f- there is a, there's a crossover point 
I mean, they're, they built 80 ships in five years. They, you know, all of the things that we hear. Uh, the, the trajectory of our two navies is not favorable. Um, if we don't, you know, I keep saying on Twitter, winter is coming. Winter is t- coming. Um, if we don't do things like arm amphibs, like get uh, uh, surface-to-surface missiles on LCS, like build the FFGX on time with the capabilities that it's going t- to have, like put better weapons on our airplanes... If we don't do the things we can do in the short term, that crossover point will happen sooner. There are things we can do within the budget cycle that can push that out. So one way to, and I don't know where this is, I wanted to ask you, based on your sources and your discussion with um, with your um, community of interest, so to speak, um, where this is as far as in in reality, in, in, dis- in real, real discussions. And one way, of course, to get the... To help the Navy do something, as you suggest, would be to make it a validated joint requirement. Is there anything in the process for the Joint Force Commander, and most probably notably in this case, uh, PACOM, uh, to say, I need amphibs armed with these offensive capabilities to accomplish these missions, these Joint Force missions? Um. The process that you describe is the integrated priorities list, the, the IPLs. Um, I haven't seen PACOM's IPLs in, in some time. Um, if I did, I, pro- I, I imagine I, they're still classified. Uh, um, but uh, Indo-PACOM. What's that? Indo-PACOM. Indo-PACOM, yeah. yeah, yeah. Excuse um, me, Indo-PACOM. But um, I do, so I don't know whether there's a hue and cry out there for for it. I don't care. Uh, it's a uh, you know uh, it's a good idea. It's a idea worth pursuing. It's a it's a way to uh, to get us toward a more distributed lethal force, a force that makes the other guy think twice about taking the first shot. That's really what it's ult- ultimately about. We need to keep the other guy from taking the first shot. Right, and as we all know, one of the ways to get things done in a bureaucracy is to convince. The boss that your good idea is his good idea, and that's why I'm wondering if the um, case the Navy has made for this has there been a case made? Um, yeah, yeah. It, so, um, distributed lethality was born in Rear Admiral Tom Roden's office one afternoon after considerable amount of getting beaten up down on the third deck by OSD about the LCS program, the LCS program that. They truncated, if you remember, in a, a just just after Christmas in 2014, I think. Um, we then went up to Newport and we did a war game, and it was a series of war games in which you had uh, an LCS force that was operated without uh, a, a medium-range surface-to-surface missile and an LCS force that was operated with a medium-range surface-to-surface missile. Um, the amount of of difficulty that this simple capability upgrade brought to the LCS it was uh, it was disproportionate to the cost the things that that the that red had to do in order to account for these things made it a worthwhile investment and hence we have the program born for uh, putting surface to surface missiles on LCS well Roden and I are in his office and we were talking about this and Roden very uh, excitable guy and, and he was just crowing about this and I said why would you stop there 
we haven't built a ship that can kill another ship since 2001, which I think was USS Porter DDG-78, uh, or no, 1999, uh, DDG-78's commissioning date. I said, why, why not put offensive weapons back on our uh, on our things? And then we just got into this thing back and forth, and he's like, we got to go talk about this. So at the time... TLAM Block Four was a classified program, which is the land, which is this anti-ship version of TLAM, uh, the long-range anti. Uh, SM6 in a surface mode was, but you had these strands of distributed lethality. You had the t- the sinews of it that were making their way. You had SeaWhip Block Two and SeaWhip Block Three, this shipboard electronic warfare improvement program uh, for sort of networked electronic warfare. You had all of these things, but there was no story. There was no way. There was no narrative to tie them together. Roden put together a narrative. Roden and 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 uh, and his uh, uh, and and Tommy Copeman out in San Diego, they put together a narrative that tied these investments together. And guess what? The narrative prevailed. The narrative actually moved money. Uh, not only did it move money, but then you begin to see the folks at Fleet Forces Command take the idea and run with it and, dist- and, and, and and expand it across the ensemble into what's becoming what's become known as distributed maritime operations which is uh, 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 the, the, the fleet operating concept for the future uh, so I think if you if you're asking have we made inroads and and uh, has money moved? Have we have an effectiveness? Yes. The most effective thing we did was we got distributed lethality out of the surface force and into the fleet. So distributed maritime operations requires a networked force. It requires battle management algorithms. It requires us to move towards integrated uh, combat systems. It requires more long-range and energetic weapons. Um, it requires... Uh, it, it requires mission command so that uh, surface ships and others are operating alone and unafraid in a contested environment when uh, sat- when satellites are gone. And then when the satellites come back up, their picture can repopulate with the best available information. This is all of this stuff is in process. And I think the distributed maritime uh, operations concept that was born down in Fleet Forces Command under the previous commander and this following through now with Admiral Grady, that's what's going to take us to a point where these ideas come into the fleet. Well, unfortunately, uh, we're we're out of time. I mean, this conversation has been fantastic, and it's gone too fast. Uh, Brian McGrath, will we see you at uh, SNA next week? Absolutely. Okay, so we look forward to seeing you there. Um, And everyone else as well. Uh, We had uh, Admiral Collum on the show last week, um, and and he had some uh, good things to say as well. So thank you for coming by Beach Hall. Uh, today it's great to see you in person as always Uh, don't be a stranger here and uh, thank you for contributing to the blog we look forward to seeing more stuff again for the readers who haven't seen it yet brian's article most recent article uh, was from the middle of last month called increase fleet lethality by arming the amphibs so thanks for coming by brian thank you so much thanks thank you ken all right uh, everybody that's it for this week's show um remind everybody if you're listening and you're not a member of the naval institute uh, it's easily easily remedied by going up usni.org and the membership tab there 
Um, again, we look forward to seeing folks uh, in D.C. next week at uh, SNA. And then a few weeks down the road, we'll be at West 2019. Can't believe it's here already in San Diego. So we look for, forward. Are you going out to that? I am not. Okay, I well, have other travel plans um, that week. But, uh, so we're looking forward to a lot of goodness out there. And we'll be talking about that in subsequent um, issues of the podcast. And we'll be actually broadcasting live from the convention center in San Diego uh, in the middle of February. So as we say, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.